What I've been asked to do today, and I'm, I'm doing this with great joy, is, is teaching and continuing to teach through the book of Genesis with you. So I invite you to take your Bibles out and turn with me to Genesis chapter 20. I'm going to read the text, and then we'll start walking through what is a, a wonderful, somewhat confusing at times kind of text, but there's so much loveliness in it. So let me read, uh, I'll read all 18 verses Uh, We pick things up in verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, of of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. Because of the woman, woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he himself say to me, she is my, did he not, excuse me, himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things in the Men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the the daughter of my father, though not not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness that you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. If uh, you like taking notes, a very simple outline today. We're going to begin by looking at Abraham. We're going to try to discover what we can by way of his his actions in this chapter. Then we're going to look at Abimelech. And then we're going to finish things off by noticing how God responds to both. And, And when I say that, I'm I'm not forgetting Sarah in all of this because I think Sarah's interaction with God and God's interaction with Sarah is probably the sweetest part of this chapter. So, so we'll get to her. But first, Abraham. 
Now, as, as we drop into chapter 20, and as I read through it, if you've been part of this series all along, or perhaps you've read the book of Genesis on your own, you know we've seen this act before, haven't we? 20 years ago and eight chapters ago, Abram and Sarai, as they were known then, pulled the same stunt off in Egypt. Because Sarai is so stunningly beautiful, Abram fears that if Pharaoh and his men think she's his wife, they'll kill him. And so what Abram does is he tells them and everyone that she's a sister. Now, how'd that go? Well, it went great for Abram. Not so much for Sarah. She's still taken by Pharaoh into, into his harem, but in exchange for Sarah being taken by Pharaoh, Pharaoh blesses Abraham with some sheep and some oxen and some donkeys and male servants and female servants and camels. Great, right? Great exchange. If, if you're married right now, be very careful how you answer that question. I mean, how many camels are we talking about? But that's the exchange, right? At that point, what happens? Well, at that point, if you go back to chapter 12, God intercedes, intercedes and he sends a plague on Pharaoh and his house, which keeps him from having sex with Sarah. When Pharaoh finally realizes what's going on, he confronts, he actually tears a strip off Abram and asks him, why did you do this thing? But fortunately for Abram and Sarai, keep on going back because of their name change, but fortunately for them, they don't get punished. Pharaoh actually sends them away, but he sends them away with his gifts. No punishment, richer in the process, and lesson learned, right? Well, obviously not, because you fast forward to our text, you go from chapter 12 to chapter 20, and they're up to the same old shenanigans. Only, only thing different this time is the location and the leader. They are now in the region of Gerar, which is sort of the birthplace of the Philistines. And now Pharaoh's been exchanged with Abimelech. He is the king of, of the region. By the way, as we get to chapter 20, how old is Sarah? Well, fast forward 20 years from chapter 12. She is about 90. 90 years old. Talk about looking good for your age. She's still stunningly beautiful. And so they... They pull the same thing off, and essentially the same thing happens. Sarah is taken into Abimelech's harem this time, and God intervenes in a similar way. He does something physically to Abimelech and his household health-wise so that he can't have sex with Sarah. But here's the question in all of this. If, if, and I know you have, as you've been studying Abraham, this father of faith, as you go from chapter 12 to chapter 20, after you've seen some of the great things that have gone on in his life and Sarah's life as well, why are they up to this again? Why lie again? Well, the answer may seem obvious. I mean, Abraham himself says, says why in verse 11. He says he was fearful for his life. Just notice the verse one more time. Abraham said, I did it. I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. So there it is. Seems pretty clear. But, and here's where I want to go deeper with you as we look at Abraham's life specifically, there has to be something more to it. There has to be something more that we can learn from that is relevant to our life today. So let's laser in even more so on this man, Abraham. What do we learn from Abraham in chapter 20? Well, first, and again, if you like taking notes, I'll give you four things that we learn about Abraham and from him. Here's the first. A, a sin committed, 
especially where the ramifications seem so negligible, is easy to repeat. Just think back to chapter 12, why I took so much time walking through it, because I want to see coming out of chapter 12, and as you fast forward to chapter 20, no harm, no foul in chapter 12, right? Essentially, I know it got a little dicey at times, but they made off like bandits coming out of chapter 12. And it gets me thinking as I consider what's going on in chapter 20. Is it possible that that had any influence on their choice here? And what if these weren't the only two times in chapter 12 and chapter 20 that they did something like this? Maybe there's more, it's just not recorded for us. Here's why I say that. Look at verse 13. Abraham says, and he goes back here, he's going back to chapter 12, and he's called by God. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, that's his his wife, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place in which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. So maybe there's more. Maybe we only have two instances recorded for us. Doesn't really matter. We just know 20 years of practice without any negative consequences. That's telling. It stands out. Have you ever thought thought about how sinning in the same way gets easier as time goes along? Especially when it seems like no one's getting hurt in the process. Have you noticed, perhaps personally, how an act that only a, a couple of years ago brought great guilt, but now... With practice, over time, no longer moves the needle. Not that the practice is any less serious. It just means that our consciences are perhaps getting a little seared more and more as time goes along. Is it possible this is taking place with Abraham and Sarah? Is it possible that this is the reason why chapter 20 still goes on in spite of the history? Furthermore, just looking at Abraham and considering our lives, Before we look down our noses at Abraham with too much vindication, aren't all lies birthed out of a desire to portray ourselves differently than who we really are? And don't those lies get easier as time goes along, especially if they benefit us in some way? And think about it. Abraham lied because he feared for his life. We often lie with so much less on the line. More on, more on this in a, in a little bit. I want to go deeper with this idea of, of, of why we lie, why Abraham lies, what's going on. But let's, let's take a look at a couple things before we go deeper with that. Here's the second thing that stands out about Abraham and his actions in chapter 20. Abraham hatched the plan to do what he does in chapter 20. He hatched the plan beforehand. We just read about that in verse 13. But I bring it up again to emphasize that it's hard to resist a sin when you've already worked the sin out, isn't it? Do you know the difference between first-degree murder and manslaughter? The difference between first-degree murder and manslaughter is that first-degree murder is premeditated. Manslaughter is accidental. A death still occurs. It's just the lead up to the death is far different. Here's why I bring that up. Chapter 20 is premeditated. They'd had the conversation and hatched a plan 20 years ago, but what they hadn't done between now and then, then it seems, was talk about God's protection. 
and, and God's promises and God's honor and what they should do instead the next time around. This man who had believed God in chapter 15 and had that belief credited to him as righteousness never considers, it seems here, five chapters later, what God may want him and Sarah to do the next time around. It's telling. And do you want to know what's sadly ironic too? Abraham and Sarah, not to ruin the story for you, Abraham and Sarah have a kid. And that kid gets married to a woman named Rebecca. Just fast forward, hang her right, go to chapter 26, and just notice what is recorded for us in verses 6 and 7. So Isaac, that's the kid, settled in Gerar. That's our, that's our region. But look what happens in verse 7. When the men of this place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Nature or nurture. Mom and dad, to get very personal with you, mom and dad, our kids are watching. And our kids are learning. By the way, you know how you could solve this issue with what's going on here in chapter 20 and 26? Just marry an ugly woman. That's, that's the takeaway. That's the takeaway. That's where, you know it's difficult when you share a joke like that when you're live streaming is you need a laugh track or something because it's very quiet. There's one person laughing in here and I think that's great. And, and what also has happened, I know about 300 TVs have just shut off. We should get a laugh track. That's what we need. Nature or nurture. That's what takes place here. By the, by the way, before we move on to the next point, this is why lust is so dangerous. What, what is lust? Lust is premeditated sin that just needs an opportunity. Lust itself is sin, certainly, but lust is also premeditated sin that just needs an opportunity. When you take 20 years of practice, tw- 20 years of thinking about something just here, and you just add opportunity, maybe a couple glasses of wine, Maybe a fight with your spouse, maybe a trip out of town, maybe self-pity as well added to it. You've got a, a perfect opportunity to finally act on what you've been premeditating on or meditating on for the past X amount of years. So too with covetousness. Hard, hard to put the visa card down even though you don't need that, that new thing after having spent the past three months fantasizing about it, Right? It's all premeditated. And it's hard to resist something when you hatch the plan beforehand when the opportunity presents itself. Something else we learn in Abraham, a third. Abraham presumes the worst. Again, just look at verse verse 11 one more time. After being asked, what what do you see in us that made you do this thing? Abraham responds in verse, verse 11, I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. What's the irony of that statement? The irony of that statement is there is no fear of God in Abraham either. At least not enough fear to keep him from lying. In fact, you could argue that that these Philistines had more fear of God than he did. Just look at verse 8. Abraham, when Abimelech, excuse me, shares his dreams with his servants, what do you read there? They were very much afraid. 
Afraid of what? The God of the dream. There was great fear of God in this place. What's the point? The point is Abraham thought wrong. That's the point. His suspicions of this people were incorrect, and he carried out a huge injustice on Abimelech and his people. See, here's the thing about Abraham. What he should have been doing instead of presuming on these people, he should have been praying instead and consulting God who knows all. Here's the last thing that I want to laser in on Abraham uh, with you. Abraham, fourth. Abraham attempts to get by on a technicality. This one just makes me shake my head. This is taking us back to verse 12. Verse 12 records Abraham acting like an 11-year-old. Just look at verse 12. Verse 12, it says here of Abraham, Besides, she indeed is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. You see the technicality? Technically, Abraham and Sarah were related in that way. Abraham, or excuse me, Sarah was Abraham's half-sister. Same dad, different mom, and they got married, to which we should all say icky, right? But they still got married. She is his sister. But not only is she his sister, do you know what else she was? His wife. Really important, really important piece of information to leave out, right? But Abraham did. But here's the thing. Let's go back to the verse and let's consider what's going on. Did Abraham lie when he said Sarah was his sister? Well, technically, no. But he did deceive, which was his goal. Again, if you like writing stuff down, write this down. You can't lie without deceiving. But you can deceive without lying the, the former is a sin of commission. The latter is a sin of omission. It's possible to deceive by what we don't say as, as much as it is by what we do. We, we today would look at Abraham and what he says here is this is a half-truth, right? Part of it was true, but he left out really, a really important part. It's a half-truth. Statements that don't contain out-and-out lies but contain a ton of deceit. Of Jesus, we read that no deceit was found in his mouth. Peter writes that we are to put away all deceit. In other words, we aren't to be people of half-truths. We aren't to to hedge things and, and attempt to get by with technicalities, but be people of honesty and transparency. But here is where I want to go deeper, deeper with you, because here's my fear when you're listening to this at home and you're sitting with your families or your friends or whatever. You're listening to this and go, well, the big takeaway from Abraham is that we shouldn't lie. That's not the big takeaway. That's not what we got. We need to go deeper with. The question that we need to ask is, why do we lie? What, what, what is going on that causes us to lie, to live with half-truths, to not be transparent, not to be open and honest. That's where I, I want to go deeper with you because if we don't get that, then we're just throwing a bunch of moral statements at one another. Don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. There's something mar- far more significant going here, and I, I want us to go, go into that a little more deeply together. And how I'm going to do that 
is by having you recall a conversation. And some of you know the conversation that I'm going to refer to. It's a conversation that's recorded for us in John chapter 4 that takes place between a, a Samaritan woman at a well with Jesus. And the conversation takes place in midday. Actually, it takes place at high noon. It, it records for us in John chapter 4 that it was in the sixth hour, which was high noon at the time. In the heat of the day, this conversation takes place between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And if you recall, if you recall that event, there's a moment in it where Jesus says to this, to this woman, go call your husband. She replies, I have no husband. Technically true. She wasn't married. But then Jesus says to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you. You have had five husbands. And the one you're living with now isn't. It's quite the past. I mean, even today, if you got in a conversation with somebody and they said, yeah, I've been married five times and the the dude I'm living with now, he's not my husband, but I've moved on from the previous. That's quite the past. At any time, that's quite the past. In fact, it was this past that was the reason she was getting water in the midday sun and not the cool of the day like everybody else. She'd rather take the heat of the sun than the heat and the scorn and the ridicule and the jeering from others because of her past. But let's consider Jesus. What is Jesus doing by pressing into her? I mean, it almost seems cruel, doesn't it? Go call your husband. Something that she probably wanted to hide. In fact, she did want to hide because she gives a half-truth. I have no husband. So what is he doing? He wasn't condemning her. He was going after what shamed her. He was going after what was causing her to live in fear and half-truths. He asked her because healing follows confession. What what Jesus was saying to her was, I know all about you. I know everything about you, and I've come for you. In fact, I've come for everybody who's living with shame in the midday sun. Look, you need to forgive me if you think I'm taking some artistic license with our text. But but living with all honesty and full transparency will only come when we realize that in Christ we are fully known, fully accepted, and fully loved, and hear me, and we hold on to that promise. As as John writes in 1 John chapter 4, the same John who who wrote the account of the woman and, and Jesus in John chapter 4, John writes in 1 John 4, verse 18, there is no fear in love. Just think about the story of the woman at the well. This woman who comes to Jesus, meets Jesus in the midday, she meets Jesus. Jesus knows everything about her. What does she do? She runs back to the village to say to people, let me tell you, come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. And what we could add on there is, and he's accepted me, and he loves me. Could this be the Christ? She's been chasing love her whole life, and she finally meets the one who loves her perfectly and knows her fully. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so go back to Abraham. 
Why did Abraham lie? Well, I thought we already over, went over that. He lied because he was afraid. That's not why Abraham lied. Abraham didn't lie because he was afraid. He lied because he didn't believe the promise of God. And because he didn't believe the promise of God, he lived in fear. And so he lied. What, what promise am I talking about? Well, we're going to look at it in greater detail as we end our time, but it's the promise that he and Sarah would have a child together. That promise. But again, just notice what Abraham says in verse 11. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. What wasn't he believing? The promise of God. The father of faith didn't believe. Why do we lie? Why do we live behind half-truths? Why do we live in fear as so many of us are living in fear right now? For the same reason. For the same reason. We aren't believing the promises of God. If, If you are in Christ, Every promise of God to you is sure. It's amen and yes is in Jesus. He's promised you that. But some of us right now are in chapter 20, right? Freaking out. Remember chapter 17. Remember chapter 15. Remember chapter 12. I don't say this to shame you. I actually say this to encourage you because here's the good news. God's promises don't rest on the size of our faith. But on his faithfulness to his promises. We have to move on from Abraham. If, if that's what we've learned and learned from Abraham, then what do we learn from Abimelech? Well, let me point out four things as well, but I'm going to do these just one after the other. Four things about Abimelech. One, the first, is he was more noble than Abraham. Secondly, he's more God-fearing than Abraham. Thirdly, he's more obedient than Abraham. And last, he's more gracious than Abraham. I mean, full confession, I like Abimelech in chapter 20 more than Abraham. In fact, in fact, I think it's hugely telling that God comes to Abimelech in a dream and not Abraham. Abraham dishonors God. He disparages Abimelech and his people, and he puts his wife in harm's way again. There is really nothing at all to like about Abraham in Genesis chapter 20. In contrast, think about Abimelech. When Abimelech, via uh, via the dream, is told what's going on, he declares his innocence while recognizing the great sin, quote-unquote, as he calls it in verse 9, being carried out. He calls it a great sin. And so what does he do? He gets up early in the morning, verse 8, and he tells his servants what's going on. He makes things right right away and extends over-the-top grace to, to Abraham. Abraham. Abimelech gives Abraham just like Pharaoh did back in chapter 12, but then he says to Abraham and Sarah, you can stay here 
Pharaoh kicked him out of Egypt. Abimelech says, you can stay here. You actually can stay wherever it pleases you. I mean, what a guy. Abimelech is great. As an aside, by the way, I want you to notice something that stands out about Abimelech that I think is so great in verse 16. You probably picked it up when I read through it, but when talking about Sarah or talking to Sarah about Abraham, he says, behold, I have given your brother. So great. I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. I love that. It's a bit of a dig, and I think if anybody deserved to give a dig at this time, it was Abimelech after, after what he went through. But I point out verse 16 as well because there's something else Abimelech does that highlights his character in this verse. He tells Sarah that he's giving, has given Abraham a thousand pieces of silver, and just notice what he says next. As a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all. Innocence of what? Because she was part of the deceit, right? She was in on it, obviously. So innocence of what? Well, innocent and innocence over having never slept with him. This is Abimelech saying to her, I want the world to know by way of this gift that you are innocent. It's a sweet picture. And, and why did he do it? My take? Not because he thought much of Abraham and Sarah, but because he thought much of their God. Which leads to our last point, God's response to both. We've, we've checked out Abraham, we've checked out Abimelech. Let's end by looking at God's response to both. How does God respond? Do you know how he responds? Maybe you picked it up already. God responds with grace. Grace is all over Genesis chapter 20. Just think about it. Restraining grace. God keeps Abimelech from sinning. Illuminating grace. God appears to Abimelech in a dream. Directing grace. God says to go to Abraham and have him pray for you. Healing grace. God heals Abimelech and his people. And then finally, sovereign grace. What do I mean by sovereign grace? Here's what I mean. If, if you're reading this, and, and perhaps, perhaps this is one of the first times you've ever looked at Genesis 20, you know a little bit about Abraham as being God's guy, and you're reading Genesis 20, and you're reading this about Abraham, and thinking, why is, why is Abraham's God's guy? Like, why him? I mean, why not Abimelech? I mean, Abraham, if this is all you got of Abraham, chapter 20, he's a bit of a creep. So why Abraham? Why is he God's guy? And why does God call Abraham a prophet? First time prophets used in the Bible. He calls Abraham a prophet, an intercessor. I speak to him, he speaks to you. He calls him a prophet. Abraham's a prophet? He's a lying prophet here. And yet... He's the one who gets richly blessed. Yet again, in spite of himself, he he doesn't, hear me, he doesn't get what's coming to him but is rewarded instead. And God uses him to bring healing. If you're thinking that and wondering about Abraham and why is he God's guy, that's the point. Questions like that are The point, you see, there is only one rock star in chapter 20. And it's not Abraham. 
And it's not Abimelech or Sarah either. It's God and God alone. Do you not hear the gospel in this? Do you you not see the grace that it's weaving its way through chapter 20? Why did God bless Abraham? Because he chose to. And not because of anything Abraham brought to the table, but because he's God. And, And what kind of God is the God of the Bible, he's a God merciful and, and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. And choosing a man like Abraham to bless makes God look good. And if we don't get this, then we don't get our salvation either. Because it's true with us too. He chooses to bless. Why is God so gracious to Abraham? Because he's sovereignly gracious. What he also is, is he's a keeper of his promises, which leads to, as we begin to wrap up, what I said on the front end was what I consider the most sweet and and precious part of this chapter, and it has to do with God's interaction and relationship with Sarah. What is God's interaction and relationship with Sarah, not only here in chapter 20, but if you go all the way back to chapter 12? Well, one of the things that stands out most of all is that he protects her again and again. God protects her from Pharaoh back in chapter 12. He, He protects her here too. Abraham didn't. God did. And then you add on top of of all of this that's going on that she's been barren for 90 years in a culture like that. And, And a husband, her husband has a child with another woman. Pretty tough stuff. She's not innocent. We know she's not innocent in all of this, but she is, she is beat up, I would have to think. But throughout it all, God protects her when her husband doesn't and other men treat her as just another pretty face. Why why this protection? Well, remember I referred to that promise I said we would look in greater detail at. Let me do that as as we put a bow on this message. Go back to chapter 17. The promise to to Abram and and Sarah at this time, or Sarai at this time, is this, verses 15 and 16. And God said to, to Abraham, and please hear the word of God to him. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now listen to verse 16. It's so sweet. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Did you hear the answer? I mean, why this protection? Well, because the promise of God was as much for her as it was for Abraham. If Abraham was to be the father of nations, she would be the mother. Uh, and and a a miraculous son they would have together. And so God protects her because he's a keeper of his promises. And yet, I have to think that he protects her because so many others didn't. 
right? And if you doubt me, remember, remember back in chapter 17 how God responds to Hagar? You remember that scene? Hagar, the one who has the child with Abraham, gets kicked out. She's by herself, thinks she's going to die, thinks her son is going to die, and God responds to her. And this maidservant who's kicked out is the only woman in the Bible who gives God a name. Elroy, the God who sees. I mean, just notice, it's so sweet, I don't want you to miss it. Just go back to look at verse 13 of chapter 16, this scene. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, just so precious, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. And he did. God God saw her plight. And he 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 saw Sarah in hers as well. And he responded, But can I also say that he sees your plight too? He's a God who sees. He sees everything. He's a protective God, a God faithful to his promises. Do you see why I find this so precious and sweet? We serve a living God, intimately involved in our lives. And so, and I realize I need to close. So with all of this in mind, let me, let me send you away with, I'll call them two asks. Here's the first thing that I, that I, want, I want to ask of you. Remember his promises to you. Just remember his promises. As I said earlier, I know many of us in the church, those in Christ, in the church, have angst and fear at this time. Remember his promises. Remember what is yours in Christ. Remember his promises to you. Like I said, get out of chapter 20. Get out of chapter 20. That's my first ask. My, my, my last, my final ask is is as you reflect on Genesis 20, see in it the better son of promise to come. See the better prophet. See the better intercessor. See the the intercessor who brings a greater healing, a healing that we all need. Don't, Don't see the father of faith when you look at Genesis 20. See the author and perfecter of our faith. See Jesus, the, the one who meets us in the heat of the day. In fact, come to the one who in another midday sun in the sixth hour was lifted up and took the scorn and the jeering and the mockery in our place, removing our fear and shame forevermore. So that's what I ask. As we close, put your eyes on Christ and keep them on Christ. Keep them on Christ. Let me pray. And so, Jesus, as we, as we conclude this time, as we come out of this text, that's, that's our desire. That's our craving. Um, for some of us, our eyes has, have been on you in this entirety, this entirety of, this, of this, 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 this quarantine time, but for some, at least at moments, We've put our eyes on different things. 
And like Abraham, we've lost faith and lived in fear, perhaps attempting to do things in our, in our own strength, presuming wrongly instead of pursuing you, going to you, asking of you. And so I pray for the, the grace that weaves its way um, so abundantly in Genesis 20. I pray that grace would be received today. Restoring grace, strengthening grace, convicting grace, illuminating grace as we run back to you, perhaps for the thousandth time, but perhaps today for the first time. Perhaps for some, they've never come to Jesus. Their eyes have been everywhere else. So I pray for them as they're listening even right now. I pray for them that they would come to you for the first time. Put their eyes on you for the first time and receive the grace that could be theirs through you. The one who took everything in our place. So we could live shameless, fearless lives. We love you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. And we pray for all of these things in your, in your beautiful name. Amen.